Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. NASA last launched astronauts into space with its final space shuttle mission in the summer of 2011. But nine years later, a rocket built by SpaceX lifted off at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida and carried two astronauts to the International Space Station. How did this private company in less than 20 years go from a fledgling startup to perhaps the biggest player in space? To answer that question, I'm talking today with Eric Berger. Eric is a senior space editor at Ars Technica and the author of Liftoff, Elon Musk and the Desperate Early Days That Launched SpaceX. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jim. What did you find interesting to write a whole book about SpaceX? I mean, why do you think it's important? So SpaceX is the most dominant space company of of, of the era of today, of, of now and of the future, most likely. You know, the things it does are surpassed only by NASA and, and by China's space agency. If you were to put it, if you were to rank it, you would put it above Russia's space agency, the European space program. Um, and they're only going to probably get bigger and more successful. And so I really wanted to understand where they had come from, because this idea of building low cost access to space did not originate with Elon Musk. He's not the first person to come along and say, we should be the FedEx of space, but he was the first person to succeed. And so I wanted to understand you know, why that was. And so I did a little bit of, of research and, and talked to some people. And I realized that all of the things that made SpaceX successful today actually were set down in those first formative years from about 2002 to 2008. And there was a heck of a story to be told about the struggle to get the Falcon 1 rocket to orbit. Um, and so that's when I decided to write a book about the origin of SpaceX and focus solely on kind of those, those beginning years and struggles. So you said he was not the first to sort of have this idea, you know, putting aside just for a moment what he did, were there other things that had happened over the recent decades that you created an, an environment where this was even possible? Were there technological advances or, or, or something with NASA? What was sort of the, the ecology that made it even made SpaceX possible? So if you go back to 2002 and you think about sort of how technology was exploding in our lives, you know, you had the internet really entering, you know, widespread use. Amazon was starting to grow. Um, this predated social media, but, but basically the seeds of what had happened in the last two decades were, were occurring and it was affecting all of these industries, right? <laughs> you know, Musk had been involved in, in PayPal, so you had banking, healthcare, you know, all these industries disrupted. But if you looked at the aerospace industry, you know, the United States was basically using rockets that were designed in the 1960s and 1970s. And the cost of launch of getting our satellites into space was going up, not coming down. And as a matter of fact, because of this, you know, the, 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 the contest to launch commercial satellites, so your, your direct TV satellites, your, your communication satellites, you know, marine navigation, those kinds of things, all of those were being launched in Europe and in Russia because those countries had much more robust commercial space launch industries. And so 
this was the environment that, that Musk came into, where there was really a dearth of entrepreneurial spirit in launch. It was basically, you know, the, the ability to put rockets into space. You had NASA with its space shuttle, and then you had Lockheed Martin and you had Boeing. And, and those were the horses you had to get into space. And so if you were a commercial company and wanted to start a business, you were paying literally hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to get your product into space. And so he came into a, at a time when the industry was ripe for disruption. Musk has talked a lot about Mars, but it seems to me that he, that before him, every once in a while, it'd be like, we're going to the moon or maybe we're going, go, going to Mars, but it didn't seem like we were really doing much to actually make that happen in a realistic time frame. Yeah. Going back to George, um, you know, Bush the first, there was the goal of, of going to Mars and then it was to go to the moon and, the, and so forth. And it was waffling back and forth and, and NASA really wasn't getting any, it was spinning its wheels. And so when, you know, when Musk founded SpaceX initially, it was in response to this fact that he looked at NASA's plans and decided that they didn't have what it was going to take to get there. You know, initially when he first got involved in space, it was to try to generate public interest and to, to increase the funding for NASA, because he thought if only NASA had more funding, then surely, you know, 30 years after we went to the moon, then we're going to be able to go to Mars. But that wasn't the case. And so pretty quickly, he pivoted to, to realize that if humanity was actually going to go to Mars, he, he felt like he needed to get personally involved, which seems really arrogant, but it, it may in fact come to pass. Well, you seem to suggest that the first goal was a little bit less ambitious. And so was there a particular thing that made him sort of switch from this is this is going to be kind of an interesting experiment to like, I'm going to create an actual rocket company that are going to take people to orbit to the moon and beyond? So from the outset, the very first people he interviewed to work at SpaceX, he told them the vision, right? And the vision was to put humans on Mars. This is back in 2002. Um, but you know, he wasn't crazy enough to think that that SpaceX was just going to rock up and, and build a rocket and launch people. You know, you had to do step stepwise manner. And for a rocket company, really, the first step you have to take is demonstrating that you have the capability to do it. So, you know, you you want to be able to build a rocket and safely put a payload into orbit. Um, and so that's what the Falcon One was really all about. It was proving that SpaceX had the technical competence to do this. And when you go back to 2002, when they started out, you know, no private company on its own had ever developed a, a liquid fueled orbital rocket. So what they were trying to do was really hard. Now, since then, we've had Rocket Lab, we've had Firefly, we've had Virgin Orbit, we've had, you know, Astra just recently come along and, and either get to orbit or, or get pretty close. And so there's been more companies following in SpaceX's wake, but, but they had to prove that they could do it. And then he could start to take the next steps that he felt were important to Mars. And really the most important step, Jim, and probably the most significant thing that they've done over the last decade was take the step toward reusable spaceflight um, with, the, with the Falcon 9 rocket. Was that originally part of the, the plan, the reusability? Absolutely. They, they put a parachute in the very first Falcon 1 launch. All the Falcon 1 launches had a parachute on top of the first stage. And the idea, which was very naive, was that the rocket would launch, the second stage would burn away, carry its payload away, and then the first stage would come back under a parachute. And actually, you know, they, they sent recovery ships out um, for those initial launches. And I talked to the, the SpaceX employees, actually an army ship that they hired, you know, who went out there 
kind of on the forlorn hope that they were going to get those stages back. That obviously came much later, but that was certainly part of the vision from the very beginning. The word desperate's in the title. So what were the, sort of the desperate moments? So there were several of them, but but by far the most desperate moment was after the third flight of the Falcon 1 rocket, where pretty much everyone assumed they were going to be successful. They were already sort of running out of money. And then that rocket went up and failed. Um, and so that was the summer where Elon Musk was getting divorced, where Tesla was hemorrhaging money. Um, and now SpaceX had just failed for the third time. And, you know, Gwen Shawell said they had payroll for maybe six or eight more weeks and the company was going to go bust. And so that was a desperate period um, when they were leading up. They had one more rocket, the fourth rocket they were going to launch. And then they were flying it out to um, flying it out to Kwajalein. They launched from the small island atoll, um, you know, beyond Hawaii, basically, if you're flying from California. And as they were flying that first stage toward Kwajalein, it starts imploding on the C-17 aircraft. And so this was their last piece of hardware. That was probably the most desperate moment when everyone on that plane thought they might die due to that imploding rocket. And then they were also concerned about losing the hardware and they were able obviously to salvage it. So um, that's, that's kind of what the story of the Falcon 1 is about and, and sort of goes you know, point by point through that just incredibly stressful, but also dramatic time. To me, it's just kind of incredible for someone who comes from his business background, classic, Silicon Valley, you know, software company to go from that kind of company to something which is which is so physical. It seems like an incredible leap for a business person to do that, or they maybe not as different as what I think. It was an incredible, incredible leap. Now, it is true that software is actually a very important part of a rocket launch because you can have the best hardware in the world, but you know, once it launches, humans have no control really over the flight of that rocket. It's got to be all onboard computer power, you know, responding to, to you know, atmospheric conditions as going up and so forth and gimbling the engines, engines and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, there was software involved, but absolutely. I mean, going from a soft, from what is a purely digital bits company to a, something where you're dealing with physical hardware, blowing things up, very energetic, you know, rocket is basically a bomb. Um, yes. And, and that is part of the remarkable story of, of Elon Musk, who, you know, say what you will about his behavior online or whatever, but, but he has a technical mastery of the things that he takes on. There's a saying, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. How much of uh, SpaceX's success is due to the sort of rocket advances made by Apollo? Yeah, I mean, you know, they they did stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, Tom Muller, uh, who Elon hired to be his chief of propulsion, had worked at a company called TRW for more than a decade and had learned to build engines there. And so he brought a lot of knowledge with him. Some of the other earliest hires came from places like Boeing. Um, And the Falcon 1 rocket was really not revolutionary at all. The the thing that was novel about it is that SpaceX tried to build it build it really cheaply, right? So they wanted to see if they could use off-the-shelf flight computers versus, you know, a $3 million component they might buy from somewhere. And they wanted to see if they could build a rocket with a couple hundred people instead of a couple thousand people. So it was really trying to, you know, vertically integrate that process, make it much more efficient and, and bring down the cost of launch as much as possible. But the Falcon 1 rocket was a very simple machine. It was a, you know, first stage engine, a second stage engine, and there was nothing revolutionary about it. That, that would only come much later with the things that they did with the, the Falcon 9. So Tesla was happening at the same time as SpaceX and also demanded a lot of time and attention. 
What can you say about Elon's involvement in SpaceX, especially in those early years? I mean, he was all in, you know, he, I think he would spend about half his time with SpaceX and about half his time with Tesla. Um, but he is absolutely a workaholic. You know, he's working, he gets up late in the morning and then he works until midnight or later most days. Um, and, you know, he was, he was all in, you know, Jim, he hired the first 3000 people at SpaceX. He interviewed them all personally. You know, he, he put a premium on, on, identifying people he thought would be good engineers and, and not good engineers at SpaceX and, and hiring only those who would be good. Um, and, you know, he was not there like at all of like the engine tests in Texas and he wasn't there at all the launches in Kwajalein. But if he wasn't there, he was watching, you know, via video connection and, you know, putting his putting in his inputs, which, of course, were stern at times. Yeah, what kind of a boss is he? He's an extremely demanding boss. Um, you know, he, he asks his people to do the impossible. And then when they jump over whatever hurdle is before them, he'll give them another even more, more challenging task. Um, and he expects the people who work for him to work for long hours and to work very hard. Um, but it, it's not like the people who worked at SpaceX feel like they're being taken advantage of. You know, they realize that it, SpaceX had a demanding work environment. And they were willing to commit, I think, you know, a lot of these were young people, right? 20, 25, just out of college. Some of them didn't even complete college and they you know, started at SpaceX. They were willing to sort of trade those really vibrant years of their life because they felt like they were making meaningful progress. You know, they were working on the hardware every day. They weren't pushing paper and they, you know, they got stock options, right? And so SpaceX succeeded. They succeeded financially and to a very great extent. So it was, you know, it was kind of like, it just was like, it was like, if you wanted to work for the best, you know, that, that was the place to go, but it was a really difficult place to work with. And Elon, you know, he can be a bit mercurial in his management style, but it's also like super, you know, super flatline. Like if he made a decision that you thought was bad and you could convince him that it was bad, then he would change his mind. And if, if like, you needed, you know, $100,000 for this part, because it was really the only way to solve this problem, you know, he would make that decision instantaneously. And like, if you had a problem, you know, he said, email me, you know, whatever time of day or night, and I'll, you know, I'll get back to you. So he, he wanted to help his engineers solve the problems. Um, and, and you know, he was he was very much involved. This is a completely different kind of business than what he did before. Why does that not really hampered him not being a not being a a rocket engineer? But he learned that like he read he read all of the books. He talked to people in the industry and he sort of, you know, made mistakes. And so he you know, he gave himself a good education on that pretty quickly. That's one of his, his skills, I think, is when he sets his mind to something, he very quickly takes in that information and processes it. I think that's sometimes <laughs> he thinks he's an expert in a lot of different things. But when he really puts his mind to it, he does, he does gain expertise. And actually, his software background, I think, gave him one really important advantage going into rockets. So, you know, for a long time, the way this hardware was built was through a methodology called linear design. And so that's maybe where you would spend two, three, four, five years looking at design schematics, trying to figure out what on your rocket would not work and, and sort of, you know, you know, just making like sort of the perfect design and then finally building the hardware and building one and having some confidence that it was going to work. He brought his software mentality, which is where you like write some code and then run the program and find the bugs, debug it and run the code again. Maybe there are a few more bugs and then, then the software works. 
he brought that iterative design method to, to rockets. And, you know, so they lost some Falcon 1 rockets, but they got the orbit. And if you've seen what they've done with the Starship program in South Texas, that is 100% an iterative design method. You know, they're losing hardware, but it's okay. It's like they're losing it by design. They're learning from each of those flights and the rockets are cheap to build because they're making them out of stainless steel. So, so this idea of iterative design and being willing to fail, I think does come from that software background. And it's been pretty advantageous for SpaceX coming into a much more traditional field. What was the timeline he imagined versus how it sort of played out? So the launch, the original launch schedule they had was actually to launch in, in two, at the end of 2003. Um, the company was founded in May of, of 2002, and he actually posted little signs above the urinals in the men's bathroom saying, you know, we're going to launch by the end of 2003. That was what the schedule was working down toward. Now, they didn't make it, but they were on the launch pad at the end of 2005, and they actually ended up launching in March of, of 2006 for the first time. You mentioned his goal going to Mars. Why is that his goal? In, in a very deep way, what, why is he doing what he's doing? Yeah, you know, it's a good question because, you know, in 18 years, he has completely disrupted the launch industry and, and built, as I say, the most efficient space company in the world. Um, they're winning all sorts of NASA and, and contracts from, from companies to, to launch stuff for in-space services. Um, and no one does it faster, better, or cheaper, really, than SpaceX anymore. They're very dominant. Um, but he's not rested on his laurels there and actually is already trying to disrupt the rocket, the Falcon 9 that he built that has done the disruption. Um, and, and I think that's because his goal is Mars. So why, why his goal is Mars? It's because he looks at, I think when he does companies, they have the, it's kind of a big mission. Um, you know, it, it, Tesla is clearly to make electric cars cool. And, and, you know, reduce our planet's dependence on fossil fuels. And I think SpaceX's mission is very clear. He's concerned about the long-term future of humanity. And he figures that sooner or later, if we stay on Earth, you know, something bad is going to happen. And that could be, you know, runaway climate change. That could be, you know, an asteroid hitting the planet. That could be like a, a much deadlier pandemic. That could be nuclear war. That could be, you know, global population stasis and then decline. Um, and so he's looking and saying, we need to be a spacefaring species and we need to be a multi-planetary species. And yeah, there's not any other planets in the solar system that are remotely as good as Earth. Um, and we're probably going to have to go to other stars to find them, but you've got to take the first step. And the first step for him is learning to live on Mars. But has Musk's focus on Mars opened him up to criticism that it's all this science fiction vanity project? Jeff Bezos also faces a lot of criticism. But when he talks about space, his attention is more on creating a space economy. For Musk, it seems existential and maybe a little hard for a lot of people to relate to. It is. I mean, it is existential for Musk. I think the real difference between Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos in space is that Elon has actually delivered. You know, Bezos, for all of his tremendous success with Amazon and commerce and, and AWS, his company, Blue Origin, has really been a massive disappointment in the space industry. Um, yes, he succeeded earlier this year in going into space on, a, on his suborbital New Shepard system, which is a fine piece of engineering. But, you know, that's that's two or three percent of the energy in that launch system that you actually need to make it to orbit. Um, and and, you know, SpaceX has now flown more than 120 orbital missions. It's, it's flown, you know, humans to, to orbit, you know, five times. I mean, they, they 
they are just so far ahead of Blue Origin and everything they've done that as expansively as Bezos talks, I think his vision is great. Basically, you know, trying to move heavy industry off the surface of planet Earth so it can be a garden for humanity. But but he's also interested too in making getting humans out into space to you know to to make sure we're a spacefaring species and sort of growing. But you know, it's far less credible to me what he's talking about than than what Elon is because Elon as I said, is actually doing it. How far ahead of Blue Origin is SpaceX? I mean, a decade at least. Blue Origin is finally building their orbital rocket. It's called New Glenn. It's a big, impressive machine, but I can't see it being ready before 2024. Um, and then they're going to have a learning curve, I think, in, in making it reusable. You know, the, the Starship vehicle that SpaceX is building is probably going to fly early next year for the first time to orbit. Or get close and then they'll iterate quickly because we talked about iterative design by the time new glenn comes out starship will already be flying and established and is a much more capable vehicle so they're just spacex is way ahead of blue origin um and you know it, it's it's unfortunate because you'd love to see two really thriving privately you know invested companies that are both sort of you know pushing re reusable spaceflight so what was the key thing he was able to do that NASA was not able to do? Yeah, I mean, the big things, I'll give you a couple examples of how they've, they've really cut costs. But the big example or the big reason is that, you know, he went for vertical integration. So his goal was to build as much of the rocket as possible in-house to cut down on suppliers and to just to, to look to cut costs at every opportunities. NASA's problem is that it answers to Congress for funding. And Congress is much more interested in the single NASA center or the single major aerospace center in that person's state or that person's district. And so their goal when they look at NASA's budget is not efficiency, it's how do I maximize dollars that are going to my field center or my aerospace company? And so when you look at a big rocket project that NASA is building called the Space Launch System, it very proudly says we have suppliers in all 50 states, right? And, and, and you know, thousands and thousands of suppliers. And isn't that wonderful? And SpaceX is like, no, man, we're trying to build as much of that rocket. We're trying to build it out of the cheapest possible material and get it to orbit as quickly as possible. And so you end up with a rocket the space launch system, which probably is going to cost about $3 billion per launch. Is it reusable? Not at all. It's expendable. It can fly at most once per year. And SpaceX is aspiring to build Starship so that the, the first and second stage are both fully reusable, can launch every day. You know, it's, it's, it's cost is the fuel plus, you know, some reuse. So maybe, maybe 50 million, 20 million, you know, a lot more lift capability. Than, than, than the space launch system. I want SpaceX to have a competitor, but that does not sound like a real competitor. You, you do want SpaceX to have a competitor. And that's why the only real competitor probably is gonna eventually come from the private industry. And I don't know if that's Blue Origin or a company like Relativity Space, but, but there, are, there are some potential competitors. And just one other example, Jim, that, that's not theoretical, but it's practical. So when NASA was looking for uh, a replacement for the shuttle to transport cargo to the International Space Station, it ran a competition. And SpaceX and another company called um, Orbital eventually won those, that, those contracts. And so NASA did that. They built, or SpaceX built the Falcon 9 rocket and the Cargo Dragon spacecraft to get supplies to astronauts on the space station. NASA did its own study. If 
to, to find out if it had independently developed that capability using its traditional contracting methods, they found, this is NASA's own study, that it would have cost four to 10 times more than what SpaceX did it for. To create that capability. Yes, to recreate that capability. And how much cheaper can SpaceX get cargo to orbit than previous rockets that were doing it? Well, it, it's, it's, it's difficult to do apples to apples. Right now, they're a little bit lower, but the fact that they're starting to get to using the rockets is what ultimately will, is the game changer to drive down costs down the road, but just in comparing on crew costs. So this is, this is carrying astronauts, not cargo to the space station. You know, Boeing and SpaceX both got contracts in 2014 to deliver that service. And everyone picked Boeing, thought Boeing would be first because they were the blue bud. They'd been a NASA contractor for decades. They had all this experience. They got 4.2 billion, SpaceX got 2.6 billion, and SpaceX first flew humans in 2020, so about a year and a half ago, and have, they've now flown five missions, four of them to the International Space Station, and they're launching every about every three months um, on Cargo Dragon. And Boeing probably will fly its first human mission maybe at the end of next year or, or early 2023. So SpaceX will have beaten them by you know, two to three years for about 40% less money. And so that's, you know, again, just kind of an example of how they've been able to do things more efficiently because they kind of came in with a clean sheet and, and just sort of with this idea of vertically integrating. If we, uh, if we had this conversation 10 years from now about what SpaceX has been doing, what do you think they're going to accomplish? I mean, it's sort of what Elon Musk says they're going to accomplish. It's always, it's pretty big. It's always pretty exciting, but what, what do you see happening? You know, what's your, 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 sort of your best forecast there? So the, the big caveat, I think, on SpaceX is they're now launching people for NASA. And, and that is a hugely important undertaking. And if there is some kind of accident, I think there will be a real pause in the United States on the idea of commercial spaceflight. Um, because while NASA had accidents, you know, they had two and 135 flights with the space shuttle and they took like, you know, multi-year pauses to stand down and reassess that. And so assuming that SpaceX is able to safely get astronauts to and from the space station, I think really the sky is the limit. The sky, I mean, the sky is not the limit, right? <laughs> space is the limit. Um, but if you look back at the early days of SpaceX, you know, Musk was limited by funding, right? He had $100 million he put into SpaceX. He could hire a couple hundred people and they could build a single rocket. You know, he is no longer constrained really by funding. When you look at what they're doing in Texas with Starship, they're putting, you know, more than a billion dollars a year into development of that facility. And it is impressive. And they're able to hire and Musk has personal wealth if the company ever needs you know, financing, but he can just go to the private capital market to get funding whenever he wants because they've been successful. And so you know, with the caveat that they continue to safely fly humans for NASA, they probably will be getting fairly close to launching humans to Mars, which sounds crazy because if you gave NASA its current budget plus 50%, they would be nowhere near putting humans on Mars in the next 15 or 20 years. Do you think having a geopolitical competitor in China also pushing forward in space makes it less likely that we would take a pause for fear of losing the next space race? Uh, yeah, China, you're absolutely right. China's our, our ser only serious competitor. There are others, but, but they are the big one that we're trying to, to stay ahead of and, and are, frankly, because of companies like SpaceX, but also it's the commercial space industry in the United States that really 
is keeping our advantage at this point. It's, it's these bright people with private money and sort of, you know, getting government contracts. It's really kind of a nice synergy. Um, so the, the, the risk you say there is from human space. I think another big risk is orbital debris. Um, and if we muck up low earth orbit, you know, we had the, the Russian test um, with Cosmos four, you know, 1408, you know, blowing up. Um, so it's, it's, it's serious. Like we're putting up these mega constellations, which okay are important for commerce and are benefiting life on earth. But, you know, if we get too much cascading debris events, then you may render some of those orbits really unusable. And so that, I think that's another big threat. Um, but, you know, I, I think the horse has left the barn in terms of commercial space, but I do know that there's lots of people in Congress. Again, we talked about protecting personal fiefdoms and districts and, and home field centers and SpaceX has put pressure on a lot of those. Um, if SpaceX were to have some kind of catastrophic accident, you would see a lot of pressure from Congress, sort of the naysayers coming forward and saying, hey, you know, we need to we need to rein in Elon Musk. He's unsafe at any speed, that kind of rhetoric, probably. What does American spaceflight look like in 2021 without Elon Musk? If those critical moments that you described if those had been catastrophic, or if you decide to take that PayPal payout and just yeah. go buy an island, what does this sector look like now in the United States? It's a great, it's a great question um, because I think people had always seen the potential of a commercial space industry, and there had been moments in like the 1980s when you thought that maybe we're at the beginning of some kind of commercial space, but then it went bust. Um, you can trace sort of you can go back and look at 2009, 2010 and see private investment in spaceflight companies just start to go straight up. Um, and it's, it's entirely attributable to the fact that SpaceX was flying its Falcon 1 successfully and then getting a contract from NASA and then flying the Falcon 9 successfully. And that was really the moment, I think, that commercial space flight became a thing. And, and SpaceX's continued success has allowed other com companies to come in and say, we're going to be the next SpaceX of satellites or of launch or whatever. Um, and it's just really given um, confidence, I think, to investors that, yeah, some of these companies are going to fail, but some of them are going to hit it really big. And, and I don't want to miss out on that, that next industry. And so commercial space probably still is a thing without SpaceX, but it's certainly a much less vibrant ecosystem. And, and so many companies are either marketing themselves as a SpaceX or benefiting from the low cost launch services that SpaceX is providing um, that it's, it, it would just be a much more boring, much less vibrant industry. My guest today has been Eric Berger, author of Liftoff, Elon Musk and the Desperate Early Days that Launched SpaceX. Eric, thanks a lot. This has been outstanding. My pleasure, Jim. Hey.